0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Calvin S. Cato. What's going on? I hear there's a problem. And I said, there's no problem. I just don't need to work here anymore because I'm going to be on television and I'm going to be famous and I'll be making way more than $12 an hour and I would no longer need your services. (laughs) That and more. But first, don't forget, we rely very
1: heavily (laughs) nowadays, more heavily than we used to, on your help over at patreon.com slash risk. This week's Patreon bonus story is from Kristen Wilde.
2: He used to try and like, be lazy and wash his dick in the sink because he was uncircumcised before we'd have sex and pr- try and pass it off as a shower. And I was like, that's a European shower. That does not count.
1: There is a ton of bonus content at patreon.com slash risk. We're still in a very, 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 very tight squeeze right now. And, you know, I mean, we've always been a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants sort of operation as far as, you know, just breaking even some years. I think the biggest challenge is that it really does take a lot of people doing a lot of little tasks and big tasks, you know, left and right to bring all of this together, we really do hugely appreciate the love and support of our fans over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, here's the show at one and a half speed. Hello, kids. This is Roosh. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Owens. (laughs) This is Brass Tracks. Behind me now... And this week, we decided to play with the speed a little bit up front Because everyone started a conversation over at the Facebook Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group About, you know, some people were saying they like to listen to the podcast at one and a half speed Other people chimed in like, oh my god, yeah, I listen to everything at two times the speed now I don't want to tell anyone how to listen to the show. I just feel like uh sometimes I'll listen to something at one and a half times the speed if it's just pure information. You know what I mean? If I'm like, I just gotta get through these facts. But I feel like when people are telling stories on the show, it's pretty deliberate. How they're lengthening words and taking pauses and letting their emotion determine the pace of how they're communicating. Anyway, we are calling this week's episode Incongruous. These are stories about people who caught themselves in awkward fits. You know, like when you try on a shirt and it's too tight in the belly area, but just right in the chest or vice versa. The final story on the episode will require a content warning, so I will return to that subject later. But before we get to anything, I want to say the next Risk live stream show is on Friday, February nineteenth at seven p.m. Eastern. We're doing it with one of our favorite storytelling organizations, First Person Arts in Philly. Tickets are at risk-show.com/slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Skyler Bayer, who shared a story at one of our recent live streams. But before that, the return of Calvin S. Cato to the show. This is also from one of our recent live streams. Calvin is a comedian based in New York City. We've loved him for years. You can find him at calvincato.com. Here he is now with a story we call Never quit your day job.
0: So for this story, I'm going to take you guys back to uh, 2007, which was a simpler time, you know, like Destiny's Child was still together and white people didn't know what twerking was. Much simpler time. It was wonderful. It was great. I had just graduated from college like six months ago. And I had a degree in English and I had a short story collection that Random House was going to buy. They did not know about this plan yet, but I knew about this plan. And I knew that they knew that they were going to buy my short story collection because learning about Wesleyan University was going to be so crazy. Oh, my God, so much opium. So (laughs) I graduated and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this and it's going to be so great. And I moved back to New York City. And I had like delusional dreams. Like I'm talking like Mary Tyler Moore dreams, you know? Like I thought I was gonna like get to Grand Central and I would just throw my hat up in the air and it would just freeze. (laughs) And I didn't know that in actuality the hat just falls into a puddle of sludge and then a cab runs over it. I had no idea about this. But I remember graduating and my friend had given me a tip to go seek out a temp agency that specified in writing jobs. And so I got my first writing job which was I was working for Latina Magazine and I was working as an editorial assistant. I helped them write a couple of articles for $15 an hour, which in 2007 was really great pre-recession. So I was like this is wonderful, 15 an hour? Like that's like what 440s an hour. That's a wonderful <laughs> deal. <laughs> so much beer. <laughs> so I was like doing really well with this gig and then unfortunately the gig ended. And so another friend suggested that I should look up this other temp agency that can get people jobs really quickly. So I get to this temp agency, which we will call Swampy Solutions. And I meet this woman, and her name is Mary Joseph. That's a fake name because unlike Mary or Joseph, she did not deserve sainthood. So I meet with Mary Joseph. And I hand her a resume and I say, you know, I'm fresh out of college. I wrote this short story collection. Random House is totally interested. They haven't answered five of my emails, but they'll <laughs> answer email number six. It's going to be great. Mary Joseph says, okay, so you worked for $15 an hour. Now I'm looking through your resume. I think that we should start you at a job making $11 an hour. And here's the thing. I was an English major, but I know math. I know that 11 is less than 15. <laughs> and so I ask Mary Joseph... Uh, I don't think that 11 is going to work for me. And then she goes on this tirade about, you should be lucky to even be making $11 an hour. You don't have enough experience. What do you think you're doing? And so she brought, beats me to accepting this job for $11 an hour. Mm. And I accept this job. And this job is working in a windowless room, mm. stuffing envelopes. And that is what I do all day for $11 an hour. And it felt awful. I did not like it. And I was very miserable. And at the end of that day, they said, We only needed you for the one day. You can go home. And on my way home, I get a call from Mary Joseph. And she says, Okay, Calvin, I know that that wasn't the best, but I heard really great things about you stuffing envelopes, which I mean, yes, an English major can stuff envelopes. I'm pretty sure (laughs) paper into other paper is a thing I can do. So she says, Okay. You did so well that I'm going to get you another job, and this job is going to be for $12 an hour, which, again, not an English major, but I know math, 12, still less than 15. But I learned from the last beration not to say anything about it. So I accept this job for $12 an hour where I'm in a Windows room of a credit union, and I have to help file clients' taxes because they're being audited. To this day, I don't know what happened to that bank. All I know is that it no longer exists and that someone may or may not have been arrested. I have no idea. I decided not to ask further questions. So I'm in this bank and I'm again, filing these things, $12 an hour, it's a very humbling experience. And as I'm doing this, I'm commiserating with other friends who had just graduated from college who are in similar straits of we have dreams, but our dreams are not coming true. One of my friends was this guy Sam and Sam had dreams of becoming a filmmaker. He wanted to make like wonderful indie films, wonderful mainstream films, and he was working a terrible office job. And then I had another friend, James and James had dreams to be like a big stand-up comedian. He wanted to be, you know, the next big thing. And his job was working on the set of MTV's Yo Mama. Um, if you don't remember MTV's Yo Mama, it was two typically white comedians telling your mama jokes at each other, and the best yo mama joke would win. And his job was, so for example, if someone would say, yo mama's so fat, X, Y, and Z, and then someone else would go, oh, and that was his job. His job was to go, oh, at the end of every joke. So not working out. But James was really plugged into casting calls. And he found this one casting call, and he said, okay, this thing like a really cool deal. It's for a new game show on the Game Show Network, and they need teams of three people. We're three people. We can do this. And I was like, yeah, sure, I can totally do this. Here's the thing. I love game shows. Like, If there's anything about people competing for a car or a new stereo or like a Nintendo 64, I'm all about it. I love those shows. I was probably the only person watching Classic Concentration in 2008. I love game shows. I was like, I would love to be on this game show because I had heard that Betty White had done game shows and she's famous. And I did not know that Betty White did game shows like Password and Match Game. She did not do shows on the Game Show Network to get famous. But I didn't know that at the time. And I was like, anything to get my star to rise so I can sell this short story collection and become the next Fran Lebowitz. That was my big plan. I was like, okay, we need to like come up with like an interesting story. Because to be cast on game shows, you always need to have an interesting story. Like something like, oh my God, I survived climbing Mount Everest. And, you know, the only thing I could think of before I slipped away was, can I answer sports trivia? Like, you need a very captivating story. So, my friends and I, we go into this casting office and we meet the casting director. She goes, okay, how did you guys meet? And I said, oh, we met in college. And she said, well, like, what did you do? Like, well, how did you really meet? And I blurted out, not untruthfully, that we had all met at a naked party. <laughs> it was close to true. We did attend a naked party together. I went to a very hippie liberal college. And at the time, every semester, they would have a naked party. And we all went and we listened to a band play naked and we would get very drunk. And it was fun. I was like, no harm, no foul. But the casting director's eyes like, got wide, huge, huge. And I knew... I think we're going to get cast on this show. I think we're going to do it,
3: guys.
0: (laughs) And sure enough, a week later, we got a call, and they were like, okay, we want you guys to do the show together. The show date is going to be a month from now. On the one hand, we really wanted to be on the show. But on the other hand, we knew there was going to be a big cash prize. And we were so excited that we were like, okay, we have to actually practice. And so the game show was called Chain Reaction, in case you guys have never seen or heard of this show. The way chain reaction works is you get like the first word and then you get the second letter of the second word and you have to guess what that second word is in relation to how it connects to the first word. So for example, it would be like chain R, R would be reaction. So chain reaction. And then reaction T, reaction time. And so on and so forth until you completed the whole chain and you want a bunch of money. We were so obsessed with winning and doing well on this show that we VHS taped that show. <laughs> we <laughs> would meet every day after work and we would practice left, right, and center. We'd be like, okay, we're going to quiz each other. Okay, what's this? This. What's this? this? This. 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 Practicing nightly until the day before we were supposed to tape the show. The day before we taped the show, I walk into the office and I sit down at my desk in my windowless room And I do nothing. I do absolutely no work. And the boss who is there says, aren't you going to work? And I said, no, because I'm going to be on television tomorrow and I don't need to work here anymore. And the boss says, this is a problem. I'm going to call Mary Joseph from Swampy Solutions and find out what's going on. So (laughs) the boss calls Mary. Mary calls me and says, what's going on? I hear there's a problem. And I said, there's no problem. I just don't need to work here anymore because I'm going to be on television and I'm going to be famous and I'll be making way more than $12 an hour and I no longer need your
5: services.
0: (laughs) And she is like, what? Like I can hear her like just what? Through the phone. And I said, no, this is just, it is what it is. Facts. She's like, okay, well then you can leave at the end of the day and don't come back. And I said, I don't have a problem with this. That's fine. So I leave, I go home, I do my last round of practicing, and then I go into the studio, which is very huge, by the way. I had no idea how big game show studios are and how much space they need to set up, like, you know, the revolving cameras and all the equipment. And like, I walk in, I'm wearing my best suit jacket, which is very not that nice. And I wear a very ratty polo shirt, but I was like, this is really good because it's blue stripes with black stripes and I assume that blue and black is a professional thing that people who aren't Donald Duck wears. So,
3: <laughs>
0: I go in and then I get in hair and makeup and I'm like, oh my God, like I feel like a celebrity. And they tell us that they're shooting five of these shows in one day and we're, uh, we're going to be taping number three. So we wait in the holding area. It's taping number three and we get on stage and I just can't believe it. Like, oh my God, there's this podium set up for us and we get to stand there and we meet the host, Dylan Lane, which I don't know where he is now. If anyone knows, please email me. Um, I'm very concerned for his health, but we go, we meet with Dylan. He sets us up and he says, so our theme is guys versus girls. And I'm like, okay, cool. We can do this, you know, and he's telling us to like, you know, can you be broyer? And I'm like, We're three hipsters from Wesleyan. Like, we're not going to be as bro-y. This is as bro-y as you're going to (laughs) get. And you would be like, yeah, Foucault. Like, you're not going to get real bro shit (laughs) out of us. What are we talking about? But I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. And so they start taping, and we get through to round one. And round one, we sweep the entire category. The girls get zero dollars. We win all the money. After that, there's a bonus round. And I still remember this, because the bonus round was... um. Cats, C, C, R, R, Baron. And you just figure out how they connected. And I saw it, and it was like a beautiful mind. I just saw it, and I was like, it's Cats, Cradle, Cradle, Robber, Robber, Baron. Ding, 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 we got the bonus points. Yes! (laughs) So then we get to round two. Sweep that round completely as well. The girls get no money. (laughs) After round two, bonus round, we sweep that entire bonus round as well. Girls still get no money. I was like, yeah, bros, yeah, bros. (laughs) Then we get to the intermission-y part, and at the intermission-y part, um, Dylan's like, so how'd you guys meet? Naked party? And my friend James goes, yeah, naked party. If you're hot enough, you should come join us. Killing the banter. (laughs) Dylan looks awkward. We weirdly hit on him like bros do. Um, (laughs) Apparently. It was great. Loving every minute of it. We get to round three, and round three is the round where you actually have to bet points. And if you bet all of your points and lose everything, then you're out of the game. We sweep round three. The girls answered two questions wrong. They've completely lost. We've completely won. And I was like, oh my god, we did it! (laughs) You know, Betty White, here I come! Like, it was so exciting. (laughs) So we finish that round, and then we have to wait for the final round. In the final round, we get to win an extra $5,000. And I was like, okay, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. We're going to do this. And so for the final round, I'm in the hot seat. I'm the one who has to answer questions. And uh, Sam and James have to give me clues. So we get to the final round. Sam and James are giving me clues. I get every single question right except for one of them. And the host, Dylan, goes, you guys have won an extra $5,000. Oh, my God. So they're like, okay, this is wonderful. Thank you guys so much. Tune in next week. Have a good night. And then afterwards, you know how, like, usually if you see Jeopardy, they, like, lower the lights, and then they have the whole, like, host banters with the uh, contestants afterwards. So we're all bantering. Things are da 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 And then the producer comes over with a contract to sign. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sign this contract, but I thought you'd give me the check on the spot. And this is the one thing that I wish someone had taught me about game shows. The producer says... Well, you realize you don't get the money now. And they said, oh, well, then I'm going to get it, what, in a week? And the producer goes, you get the money six months after the show airs. Mm. So if the show airs next week, I can get it in six months after that. The show might not air for a year, and I may not get the money for a year and a half.
3: Mm.
0: Now, this poses a dilemma because I just quit a job. (laughs) (laughs) expecting to get money, said money is not coming. So the next day after, I end up having to call Mary Joseph. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, girl. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so remember when I told you to go fuck yourself? Um, <laughs> Toad's kidding. Would love to work at the bank. <laughs> and she says, and I will never forget. She goes, you know what? We'll call you. <laughs> and she hangs up on me. Uh-huh. I did not get a call from her. But I mercifully, in a month, the show aired.
2: Mm. And
0: two months after that show aired, I got my money. Ooh. And I literally, I got the check in the mail as the good temp agency that I worked with the Latina magazine had called me back. And they're like, hey, we have a really wonderful magazine opportunity for you. And I was like, yay, thank you, God. <laughs> And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is why people tell you never, ever quit your day job. <laughs> That's been my story. Thank you so much. <laughs> it starts with the chain underneath. Get
3: the word game in your life. Right. The word game starts chain. the chain. Get your letter, make a guess. Connect the chain with some cash. Guys girls
0: right now. The Spare tire, tire tread, tread water, water spout, spout off. That's it. Pizza pie, pie chart, chart topper. That's it.
5: Green
0: Bay. Baby,
1: watch. Are you a fan of that show, Steve? <laughs> uh, are you, Dylan? <laughs>
0: watch well, <laughs> closely closely knit knit cap cap sleep <laughs> oh. mental note note paper paper clip clip art. art art auction auction box is that a chain yes it is <laughs> what game is with nintendo and barrels donkey kong what happens when it's raining softly drizzle who was in mean girls lindy lohan what <laughs> Do you, build at the beach, sandcastle. One more. Where is Hitler from? Germany. Guess what, guys? You can have a beer now because he just won another five thousand dollars. Come on down,
5: man. Come on down. Thank you, thank you. So I've just entered an iceless ice rink. And instead of ice, there are these gray and blue grappling mats all over the place. Because today is a grappling and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu tournament. Grappling is a kind of wrestling, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is wrestling with like really tough pajamas called gi's. Um, you try to choke people with them, basically. And I am here to actually compete. Um, My friend Rachel told me about it, and it was free for women to register. And she's like, what do you got to lose? And I was like, well, besides my dignity, not much. I, I was a white belt. I really hadn't been training for very long. And there's tons of people milling around in mostly black spandex and like very intimidating physiques that were way more in shape. Like I was a shape and they were in shape. Um, <laughs> and so I'm there and I'm nervous because it's really been a while since I had rolled with anyone. But I'm also nervous for another reason. And that was because about nine months ago, prior to this competition, I had gotten really, really sick, like the kind of sick where you sleep 12 hours a day and you don't feel better. Um, I thought I had Lyme disease. Maybe I developed an autoimmune disease. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And one of the scariest parts of it was that my heart was doing these single like arrhythmias. It felt like someone was squeezing my heart or like pinching at it every day, randomly throughout the day. And that really scared me at 25, because I'd had heart surgery the day after I was born, and I was sort of thinking, holy shit, you know, is the warranty, after 25 years, is the warranty on my surgery up? Like, is this kind of it? Like, I don't know. I don't know. So, I got admitted to the hospital on Thanksgiving, and so I had to wait for like five days (laughs) before they decided to do this exploratory surgery. And I was really, really nervous, because I hadn't really had surgery since I was born. You know, I don't remember that. And so I'm waiting in the prep room and the anesthesia nurse comes in and she says, um, we're going to give you the type of anesthesia that you're still responsive, but you're not completely out, but don't worry, you won't remember anything. And I was like, really? And she says, yeah, in fact, patients don't remember my name. And I was like, well, what's your name? And she is like Marianne, and I was like mental note. Her name is Marianne. <laughs> and I'm an academic, so I pride myself on memorizing facts. So she gives me some drugs to go into the surgery room. I'm I'm starting to feel a bit groggy, like I'm like drunk, like I've been drinking all night or something, and. And as they, like, lie me down on the surgery table and I start strapping me in and they put these, like, panels down on the sides to keep me, like, down <laughs> for whatever they are about to do, I kept being like, okay, now I'm going to pass out, now I'm going to pass out. And it, it doesn't come. And I start to feel them stick this, like, wire, or it felt like a metal rod, like in my femoral artery which is like in my thigh next to my pelvis and it just feels like my body is just like piece of flesh being like thrown side to side and they're putting it up my femoral artery into my aorta so they can basically poke around in my heart and I start weeping and the nurse is like oh I'm sorry honey you know the drugs make you weepy and my heart starts, like, flooding around, and it starts to feel like there's, like, a hummingbird in there. And I'm crying because I'm so angry, <laughs> and I'm so scared, and I'm awake, and I should not be remembering any of this right now. And at one point, my heart rate gets so high, it feels like literally a hummingbird. And it, later, I found out it got up to 380 beats per minute. And this sense of, like, doom starts to come over me, which is actually a sign of a heart attack, I learned later. And I'm convinced that the monitor right above my head is coming down at me and slams into me like a freight train. I wake up and find that I'm still in surgery, completely pissed, and the the monitor is above me. And that's because I've actually just been defibrillated by a bunch of electricity um, to get my heart working again. And... The doctor says at one point, he's like, does this feel funny, Skylar? And I say, just as funny as everything else has felt this past hour. And you would think that if your patient can handle like a sarcastic response during surgery, maybe they don't have enough anesthesia. But I'm not a doctor. so, um, So finally, the surgery ends. I mean, it feels like forever. It was probably what, like an hour or something. And they sit me up and they say something to me like, you don't remember anything, do you? And and I'm, like, looking around at them like a drunk madman because some of this the anesthesia's working. And so I'm, like, slurring my words. And I say to the doctor, I was like, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> and I point to him and I go, you, I wanted to tell you to fuck off, but I thought that would have been very rude. And then I, like, wildly point to the technician and I'm like, and you, your typing was so annoying. And then I save the best for last for Marianne, and I slowly turn my head around, because she's right behind me, and I turn it like very slowly, like, exorcist-like, and I go, thanks, Marianne. And she totally gasps, but I hope is, like, absolute horror. But the whole point of this surgery, right, is to figure out what the hell is wrong with my heart. They figure out that it's like the worst case scenario they gamed out, which is I have bad wiring, and that means that they're going to have to insert essentially a computer called an ICD into my chest that will attach to my heart with wires, and it's there to defibrillate me in case my heart rate gets too high or to pace me. So it's a really fancy computer, but it doesn't have Bluetooth, I found out, which is really a shame. as I talked to my friends about it later. Um, And so that surgery goes really well, the implantation surgery. But because of that first surgery, I had nightmares for months that my heart rate was going to get so high. And so I was like, I was convinced in my dreams that I was about to be defibrillated and I would wake up in a panic, like panting. i put my fingers to my um, neck to see if I could somehow slow my pulse down that way. And it would never come. The shock would never come. But I was just always worried that I was going to get defibrillated. And um, I was a marine scientist. And actually, because of my ICD, I couldn't scuba dive anymore, which was a part of my research. And so um, they don't let you scuba dive and do marine science with an ICD. And so I felt completely out of control of my body. And I was only 25 years old. And I was also an athlete, You know, I did things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I was so terrified that if I was, like, lifting up a heavy tank or going for a run or really anything, that I would just get defibrillated and that everything else would be a disaster. But here I was at this Brazilian jiu-jitsu and grappling tournament (laughs) that my friend Rachel had convinced me to go to because it's free, so what did I have to lose? And I'm I'm there, and it's time for weigh-in. And I weigh in, and I get matched with this woman named Jill, who's super in shape and is a former rugby player. And I know she's a former rugby player because she goes to Rachel's gym. And so I was like, great, I can embarrass myself in front of someone I kind of know. Um, and so we get on our mat, our little gray and blue mat, and the ref is, like, standing right there. And we do, like, if you've ever seen in UFC fights, they do, like, the coded handshake where you, like, slap and then bump and then you stare at each other like you're going to kill each other but as a white belt you don't really know what you're doing <laughs> and so we like grab each other's necks and arms and we're trying to trying to get to the ground because that's actually the only thing that we, we only know how to do stuff from the ground so it's really awkward watching and it's like this ill conceived Abbott and costello tripping skit and so finally we get to the ground i'm not really sure how but i assume jill's like rugby skills played a huge role in that but now i am on the bottom and all of jill and her chest is like pressing into my chest pressing into my back in the mat and i am like wow i just made a terrible life choice right now this is a terrible thing and she's flailing around which is not great but who am i to judge in this position but then my jujitsu training kicks in, because this is the position that we train in, especially as a white bow. And so I think one thing at a time, one thing at a time, that's what we're supposed to do. And I get my right leg and put it over one of her hips, and then I get my left leg and put it over her hips, and I lock my legs around her hips. Now I have control over her hips, and this is really exciting. Like I am thrilled that I've gotten this far. And she's flailing her arms around still, which is great actually, because I grab one of them and I pin it between her chest and mine and I pull her close to me. And then I lift up my legs and I wrap them around her shoulders and her arm. And this is actually a move in jujitsu called a triangle choke. <laughs> I'm actually doing something I'm supposed to be doing. And she's choking between one of my legs and then her arm. And I'm I'm inching like millimeter by millimeter. I'm taking this space away and I'm getting this choke. And I'm so excited. And then, bam, I feel this huge force across my head and my whole body and my ears go numb. It feels like silence for hours, but I know it's a second and I think, God damn it, that asshole. There's no hitting in jujitsu. But then I remember that there's a computer attached to my heart whose like sole purpose is to electrocute me. So I was like, that's probably <laughs> what happened. And if you zoom out of this for a second and you're looking at us, there's a ref like a a foot away. There's me on my back. My legs are wrapped around her shoulders. She's flailing around. She's on her knees. My hips are arched. And then all of a sudden, I kind of just let go. And I go, ah, as my device goes off. And so the ref calls it immediately. And he asks me if I'm okay. And I say I'm okay. And he said, I'm sorry, but anytime anyone makes a noise like that, we have to call it. And I'm like, okay, and I'm kind of like in shock, because I feel fine, but I know what happened. And I stand up, and he grabs one of my hands, grabs one of Jill's hands, lifts her hand up, declares her the winner, and I kind of drift off to where my boyfriend is actually sitting in the stadium seating, and Rachel's there too, and they're like, well, what happened? And I was like, well, I think my defibrillator went off. And then Jill comes over, and she's like, yeah, I heard like a pop in your chest. And they all look at me, and they're like, do you need to go to the hospital? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm still so traumatized from when I was in the hospital. Like, the last place I want to go is the hospital and those doctors and everything. I'm like, no, no, no. I feel fine, but maybe no more matches for today. And and my boyfriend kind of studies me very carefully and goes, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And so I have to tell my doctors about this, right? And I actually have a little device. It's like a computer screen with an antenna that you have to plug into a phone line because I guess the Ethernet isn't accessible in 2011. I don't know. Um, and then I, I stand next to it, and somehow, without Bluetooth, the data transmits from my device to this one and over the phone lines to my doctors. It's very creepy. Um And so they call me and they're like, well, to prevent your heart rate from getting really high again, we would like to put you on beta blockers, which slows your heart rates, also can be a mood-altering drug. And I was like no, you know, I do not need this. <laughs> and I say to them, I'm in grad school for my marine biology degree. You were in grad school. How would you have felt if you got put on drugs in grad school? Like, what would you say? And I'm like yelling at the doctors on the phone. And they just go really silent. And one of them says, well, you sound good. Um,
3: <laughs>
5: so I was like, okay, I guess I win. And, but I'm freaked out about doing more jujitsu at this point. Uh, but a couple weeks later, I go to a coffee shop and see a flyer for a roller derby team. And I end up trying out and becoming part of the Rock Coast Rollers. Rename myself Sass Gorilla. And actually, Gorilla is a UFC female fighter, or was. And, you know, after three years, my doctors are okay with all my physical activities. In fact, they're like asking me when I'm going to have a baby, which I keep thinking, like, that seems more dangerous than any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> and I, I end up leaving the team to finish my degree, and I'm like, maybe I should go back to jiu-jitsu. And so I do. And I'm proud to say that this past February, I tested for and earned my purple belt in jiu-jitsu. Um, which, the only ones left are brown and black, so still... But I'm really proud of myself for coming this far, and I can say that in eight years since that match with Jill, I have not been defibrillated once. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Spoiler bear everybody. Starler bear. That was amazing.
1: This is Risk. This is Queen and David Bowie. We thought of doing a mashup of this song instead, but <laughs> I think the song is kind of a mashup with itself. Before that, we heard from Skylar Bayer. you can find at skylarbayer.wordpress.com. And before that, a little interstitial that Jeff Barr created out of uh, clips from that episode of Chain Reaction that Calvin Cato was on. Folks, if you get on over to thestorystudio.org, you'll see we have a two-day level one Online group storytelling workshop on February 20th and 21st, being taught by Amy Sallaway, who is fantastic. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a Great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
3: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
1: Now, our final story on this week's episode comes from our most recent live stream, This is a fascinating story uh, told by a young lady named Randy Williams. It's a complex story. Uh, It was very interesting, the conversations that it engendered after the live stream. You know, we have Q&A and all that after the live streams. I do have to warn you, there is an incident in the story, a sexual situation here where consent is not given. And I had a lot of thoughts and feelings of my own that I thought I would share after the story. But this was Randy's first time on a show like this. And I think she really brought it. You can find Randy on Instagram at yogitherandy. And here she is now, Randy Williams, with a story we call Do You Get My Meaning?
3: Fresh up.
4: Thank you, thank you. So, it's about 7 in the morning, in the middle of March. I'm 16 years old, and I'm waking up in the back of a Subaru, with the seats pushed down so my best friend Mikey and I can have a place to sleep for our camping trip. It's our spring break and we want to do something, but we don't have very many resources. So we decide to go camping, but we're in Montana and there's still two feet of snow on the ground. So we have to sleep in the car and I'm waking up and I see Mikey is sitting up and looking at me. And he says, do you want to go get some breakfast? And I say, no, I just want to go home. And he asks again, are you sure? We can go anywhere you want. It's on me. Let's just go get some breakfast. And I say, no, I just want to go home. On any other given day, I would have jumped at the opportunity to spend even more time with Mikey because he is my best friend. He was the first person to become my friend when I moved to Montana just three years before. And we have so much in common, not with our interests and our hobbies, but with how we see and feel and experience the world. So we really understand each other and trust each other. But on this particular morning, I'm waking up from a night that I'm just totally, absolutely confused about. Because in the middle of the night, I wake up with Mikey's hands on my ass and he's just feeling around And eventually, he makes his way with his hands to my crotch, and he's doing the same thing. And while this is happening, I even have the thought of, should I do something back? Should I say something? What am I supposed to do here? But I'm petrified. So I lay there and pretend I'm sleeping, and I don't say anything to him. So the next morning, when he asks if I want to go get breakfast with him, I really don't. I just want to go home and process it. So he drives me the 40 minutes or so back to my parents' house. And I don't talk to him about it. I just try to act as normal as I can around him. And of course, this is our spring break. So school has to go back in session. And for the first week or so, Mikey's acting really pretty normal around me. He's still eating lunch with my friends and I, and he's still trying to talk to me, but I'm not giving him much to work with. I'm kind of ignoring him when I can, but I don't want to start anything too dramatic. At this point in high school, I have a very clicky group of friends. So if someone has a problem with someone else or there's any drama happening, it really isn't long before people start to talk about it. So the second week back from spring break, I'm walking to choir with my friend Oz and we go down the set of stairs through an entirely glass annex into the older part of the building where it's colder and darker. And we're almost into the music hall, so close when Oz says, why aren't you talking to Mikey? I wasn't as good at hiding it as I thought I was. And I begin to tell Oz what I'd experienced on our camping trip and everything that happened. And right as we're entering the music hall, Oz stops me and grabs me by the shoulder and says, That's sexual assault. And we need to talk to someone about that. And before I know it, I just see this cloud of gray going over my vision and there are hundreds of kids pushing past me because it's a small hallway and I can't move and I can't hear. I just feel the buzzing and I hear in my head, sexual assault. We need to talk to someone. That's sexual assault. And over the next few days, I begin to notice that I'm suddenly very anxious, and I'm having bad dreams and I can't sleep at night. And I start to carry a worry stone in my pocket, in my coin pocket of my jeans every single day, just so when I feel that buzzing in my brain or the blurring of my vision, I can have something physical to press all of that into and have a focal point. And within days, I'm in my guidance counselor's office, and she's even, Trying to swap around my school schedule as much as she can so I don't even have to pass Mikey in the hallway because I'm suddenly terrified of what'll happen when I see him. My understanding of sexual assault was that it had to be very violent and traumatizing, and so that's what I made it. And I turned Mikey into a predator right then that I didn't want to see. As far as I know, no one ever talked to Mikey about what had happened. No guidance counselor got him in trouble or anything. But he's my best friend, so inevitably, we had to communicate. And one afternoon, he texts me and says, why aren't you talking to me? What did I do? And my skin starts to get hot, and I don't like confrontation, and I don't know what to say. So all I can muster up through my thumbs is I was awake, and I hit send. And within seconds, I'm getting so many text messages coming back saying, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I would do that. So he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And he continues and says, I can't even look at myself in the mirror, and I can't stand to look at you knowing what I did. So he's turning himself into a monster right in front of my eyes. And at this point, my friends all know about it. So they don't talk to him and they've turned him into a monster. And I'm sitting here being turned into a victim. And that really plays into everything for the rest of my life for the next few years, even as I'm navigating my sexuality, because at 16, I think I might be bisexual, and I want to explore that. So as I'm visiting my friend Annie in Oregon the summer after spring break, so just a few months, we're going hiking a lot, and I'm just spending most of my time with Annie, and as she's driving us to all of these cool trails, we're holding hands, and she would look over at me and say, I want to kiss you. And I would look back at her and say, so do it. (laughs) And by the end of my trip, we definitely made that happen. We are snuggling in bed, watching some sitcom on my laptop, and we're making out after just a few minutes. And very quickly, she tries to take it a little bit further by reaching her hand into my shorts. And this is the first time I've ever done anything with another girl. So I'm nervous and terrified and excited, but so nervous. So I push her hands away. And immediately Annie pulls me into a snuggle and she starts putting my hair and says, I'm sorry. And I say, it's OK. And she pulls me in tighter and kisses my forehead and says, I'm sorry for what he did to you. And she can't see my face but it scrunches up because I didn't know what that had anything to do with what we were just doing. I was excited, but I was nervous still. And I didn't expect that to come up. But it really hit me in that moment that people see me as a victim and it's a part of my identity. It's a label that I've taken on. It feels like it's tattooed across my forehead and I can't escape it, but I don't want to feel like a victim. I don't feel like a victim. What I'm feeling from all of the anxiety that I've been experiencing was that I miss my best friend, and I want him in my life. And that anxiety just builds up, and it all comes down to missing him. Because when he was turned into a predator by my friends, And by himself, I felt like I couldn't talk to him. However, a year after almost exactly the spring break trip, we reconnect. And it's just through a mutual friend inviting me to a party. He says, Mikey will be there. And I really don't know what happened between you two, but... I know you guys are best friends, so I think you should just talk to him and come hang out with us and have fun. And I just say, okay. I unblock Mikey's phone number, and we do reconnect, and it's so seamless because we're best friends. Now, a year before that, I'd taken someone else's words that I had been sexually assaulted, and I ran with it. And I let it shape me into a person who is anxious and scared and missing my best friend. And it turned him into a predator. But now, as my friend is inviting me to this party, I sort of take it as permission to invite him back into my life. If I could go back, I would really want to take the experience as my own. Take what Oz told me and not just run with it immediately. And if I could take the suffering that Mikey felt, all that self-hatred and all the anxiety that I felt and all the worry my friends felt, I would. But that's not how it happened. I was without my best friend for a year and it sucked. (laughs) About a year after, Mikey and I reconnected I was in college at this point, and I was walking to class. Still, up to this point, I was carrying that worry stone in my pocket. Even though Mikey and I had reconnected, I still took that physical piece of my trauma with me everywhere. And as I'm walking to class one day, I notice that I don't have it in my pocket. And for the next few minutes, I feel really naked because I've just been habitually putting that in my pocket every day. I've rubbed that thing so smooth (laughs) because of everything that I pressed into it. But by the time I get to class, I feel fine. I don't feel naked without my rock. And in the end, I'm just so damn happy that I have Mikey back in my life and we've been able to talk and move on, experience forgiveness, and that I don't have to habitually carry that peace that rock with me anymore. Thank you.
1: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Gavin DeGraw behind me now, and we just heard from Randy Williams, who you can find on Instagram at YogiTheRandy, that's Randy with an I. So when Randy was workshopping that story with us, the very first thing I thought was, Oh boy, I'll bet there will be a listener out there or any number of listeners out there who might have lived through something pretty similar to what Randy lived through, but who do find it profoundly meaningful to call what they experienced sexual assault or to think of themselves as sexual assault survivors. So I expressed to first the casting coaches and then to Randy's workshopping coach that I felt it would work best if Randy said something like this. This is how I typed out the words I wanted to encourage Randy to paraphrase. Quote, Was that sexual assault? Officially technically. Don't get me wrong, I know that he did not have my consent for doing something that requires consent. But to me, it was important to allow myself to have my own feelings about it, and to choose my own language for it." Now, when I do that sort of thing, when I literally type out scripted material to pass on to a storyteller, I'm very careful to say something like, I would suggest you say something similar to this if it rings true to you, so that it doesn't read as if I'm saying, hey, if you want to be on my show, you have to be willing for me to put my words in your mouth. I never intend to do that, to tell a storyteller, you gotta say it this way. In any case, sometimes storytellers reply back oh, holy shit, that's actually what I was trying to say. But other times, storytellers will get up on stage and stick to their guns and just leave out what I suggested. (laughs) One time, at a packed Risk live show, a big, amazing night, a fella got on stage and said, okay, folks, Kevin told me to say that I am open to the suggestion my therapist made that I did not have sex with extraterrestrials and that that was just a figment of my imagination. Well, screw that. It's my story and I'm telling you I had sex with extraterrestrials. (laughs) So when that sort of thing happens, I have to humbly accept it. I don't have to run it on the podcast if my own mixed feelings about it are just way too complex, but I do have to respect that when a storyteller more or less says, Kevin, thanks for your input, but I have to stick with my truth, my perception. So during that last live stream, when Randy was telling her story, and as the story went on and I wasn't hearing the words I suggested she say... I thought to myself, oh, wait a minute. My suggesting that Randy say those words was, in a way, maybe a reenactment of her friends and counselors telling her what words to apply to her experience. It really is her right to tell her story the way she wants to tell it and to accept or not accept whatever labels others might apply, and to address that however she might feel most compelled to address it. And while I was thinking that, this is where my uh, ADHD (laughs) can make doing my job really hard. I, I often stop listening to a story and start rummaging through my own thoughts and feelings. But while I was thinking that during the live stream, as Randy continued to tell her story, I thought to myself, okay, both these kids were 16 at the time, probably didn't have a ton of experience or education around sexuality. And then like a bolt out of the blue, I thought to myself, wait a minute, that happened to me. I was 16. I was sleeping over a friend's house. I woke up, and my friend had his genitals in my face and was trying to force me to give him a blowjob. And I resisted and resisted. He was pulling my hair, you know, yanking my head around. I must have said no three or four times, maybe even five. And then finally I gave up and gave him the first blowjob I ever gave anyone. And the next day, I told him, that was really uncool. And he said, yeah, but you liked it. I said, I'm not saying I didn't. I'm saying that was really uncool. The way you surprised me awake and then forced me to do it, even though I said no a bunch of times. And then I told several of my friends at school about it, and they said that was really uncool. And that was that. Now, there is an entirely different power dynamic between cisgendered gay males than between other gender pairings. Nevertheless, one of my friends might have said, shit, Kevin, that was sexual assault. One of my friends, or even I, might have shared it with a counselor at school, and that counselor might have said, that was sexual assault. And so, 16-year-old me would have had to figure out how to deal with people labeling my experience that way, when at that point, I had only really experienced it as something I had only really labeled uncool. It's also really interesting to note that when David Drake shared a story on the episode called At Odds in July of 2020, a story all about people remembering their first blowjobs, it sparked a conversation among some members of the RISC staff remembering their first blowjobs. And at that time, I couldn't remember what mine was. It wasn't until Randy was sharing on the live stream that it came back to me, which makes me feel like, oh, it's an interesting story to revisit and, and see where I'm at now. I used to have a therapist friend that I would talk to about risk stories. And at one point, we had a child molestation story on the show where the storyteller looked back With a mixture of rather fond feelings and forgiving feelings, as well as feelings going in an opposite direction. And I remember he said, well, in my line of work in therapy, many feel that a really good therapist should never try to convince someone that something that happened to them was traumatic A therapist should never try to force a definition of something that happened onto a patient if the patient strongly feels that they personally are inclined to define it differently. Now, in the kink community, uh, you hear the term consent violation a lot. And I think most take that to mean an act where consent was required but was not given But the act itself was not quite so destructive or offensive to feel worthy of the harsher sounding or even legal term sexual assault. So I have heard people choosing that label before, and I've used it before myself as having been inspired by hearing them use it that way. I've never forgotten this English class from my freshman year of high school, where Mr. Hussong <laughs> taught us the difference between denotation and connotation. Denotation is what a word literally means by definition. But connotation is what a word means by association. Connotation is more like what a word sounds like it's suggesting, how it feels. If you were to use it in a poem, what tonal effect would it have? When I was in college in uh, 1990 at NYU, I joined an activist group called Queer Nation and I got a t-shirt with the Absolute Vodka logo on it, but redone to say absolutely queer. At that time, we felt that taking this word queer that had been used for decades as a hateful, hurtful slur, a word that had a really vile, heinous connotation, but then proudly owning it, and putting it back in people's faces as like a badge of honor. We felt that was a really punk rock sort of thing to do. And now, nowadays, queer is pretty much friendly, positive-feeling and a catch-all sort of word for anyone who feels a little bit different than the norm about their gender or sexuality in almost any way. And people use the word without flinching or meaning to be provocative at all. So words have different connotations over time, depending on how they're used in an ever-evolving culture. So coming full circle here, all of this is just to say that at risk, we don't intend to excuse consent violations or sexual assaults. We would never want anyone out there listening who has been through similar circumstances as Randy shared to feel that they were not violated or not sexually assaulted as they understand it. But people are complex and relationships aren't one size fits all, any kind of relationship, a friendship, whatever, can be flexible and changing and full of surprises. And I think Randy spoke to that in a very powerful and relatable way. Okay then. I know I'm repeating myself, but it's worth repeating that the next Risk live stream show is on Friday, February 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're doing it in conjunction with one of our favorite storytelling organizations, First Person Arts in Philly. The tickets are at risk-show.com/tour. Also, it's 15% off everything at the Risk store from February 17th through the 20th. And that is at risk-show.com shop. If you'd like to hire me for storytelling training, I am at kevinallison.com. My latest clients have been someone working on a memoir. Someone working on a big job interview process where they have to do interviews with multiple people and someone creating their own new podcast and needing a little help with all of that. So again, I'm at kevinallison.com. Now, to talk with other fans about the stories you hear here on the show, join the Risk Podcast fans discussion group on Facebook or look for our subreddit, Risk Podcast. And you can follow us on all our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at thekevinallison. Folks, (laughs) Folks, <laughs> today's the day. Take a risk.
0: How did you know you liked one another when you were at the naked party? <laughs> Well, you know. Alright, it's kinda drill downwards and you know. He makes really good eye contact. Oh, that's good. (laughs) That's important in a friend. Any more naked
2: parties in your future? You'll be the first to know Dylan.